You are listening to Building the Church in the City, a Bay City Church sermon series on the book of Nehemiah. For this and more video and audio resources, visit baycity.church. I think it was a couple months ago, I took my children, which is always a small miracle, to the movies without my wife. So it was very difficult, and it always is, but they're getting older, so it's a little bit better. I've got three kids, uh, two, four, and six, and we went to go see Ralph Breaks the Internet. Okay, so it's, this is a really scary movie, but nonetheless, they were able to make it through. Okay, I don't know if you've seen Ralph Breaks the Internet, but I'm not going to give a lot away because I know there's a deep anticipation for what takes place in this movie. So I'm not going to give any of it away, but I will say that there's an interesting part of the movie where he goes into the, uh, into the Internet, so to speak, and he comes to the lady who runs the Internet, and in order for them to make enough money to do something, he's got to go viral. He's got to figure out a way to go viral. And half of you are probably figuring out how to do that right now, okay? Like, how do I go viral with my YouTube videos or fail videos or whatever it is that you're trying to go viral with? So he's trying to figure out how do I go viral. And so he ends up doing it. He ends up going viral with, like, several different videos, and he becomes this, like, YouTube star. And he's just crushing it. He's living the life. People love him. He's excited. People are high-fiving. Everywhere he goes, everyone knows his name. But he hasn't done anything but make YouTube videos, but everyone knows his name. But then there's this one point in the movie where Ralph, the, uh, what was the protagonist of the movie? I don't know. Uh, I don't think they thought that hard about it. So he goes in and he finds this section of YouTube called the comment section. He's never been there before. There's a, has anyone been to the comment section of their YouTube page? Hopefully not. I mean, many of you live there, okay? But he went, he goes, descends into the comments room section of YouTube. And he's going and he's like, man, I'm crushing. I got all these views. What are people saying about me? Let me see. And he starts scrolling through, and his smug, confident face quickly turns white as he realizes that the overwhelming majority of all of the comments about all of his videos are incredibly negative, name-calling, right? No one likes him. Like, if you were to read the comments, you would think, nobody likes me at all. Despite the fact that he's got tons of likes and very little dislikes, you would think that no one likes him. Trolls, internet trolls reared their ugly head and were, were screwing with Ralph. This goes to show you, okay, this goes to show you that no matter what you do, even if how silly and, and small you may even think it is, that there's always going to be opposition and detractors, even for something as silly as a YouTube video, okay? And we find ourselves in this weird passage of Nehemiah finally getting all of the goods and getting ready to go rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and opposition shows up. So let me catch you up. 141 years before Nehemiah, the walls of Jerusalem, his hometown fall. 141 years after the walls fall, Nehemiah's heart is broken for Jerusalem. He wants to go back and fix it. Last week we talked about uh, uh, Nehemiah going and asking the king, the king that he was over for tons of resources, money, uh, wood to build from his private wood reserve to go rebuild the city. And the king says, Okay, sure. Even though I had an open decree against Jerusalem, I'll let you go ahead and fix the place. Sure. So he's in, in this passage, as, you, as we read, he's in the middle of traveling to this place. He crosses a river, and he gets to a province, and right when he gets there, detractors show up. They show up, and they go, I don't like what you're doing, Nehemiah. Has anyone been there? Has anyone tried to do something positive for like a neighborhood or a school and then immediately had someone dislike what you did by show of hands? Nobody. 
just me. Maybe I'm just really unlikable. Okay, that's possible. You may be thinking that right now. Now, that's hilarious. So a few of us have, right? We've experienced negativity in the face of trying to do something positive. We got that when we were trying to begin the process of starting a Bay City Church. For those of you that don't know, me, me and my wife, Sarah, I'm from the Bay Area. My wife is, isn't from the Bay Area, but we spent a lot of time here, and we've helped plant other churches around the country. And when we tried to come to San Francisco to begin a Bay City Church, we've had a lot of detractors. We were only trying to do positive for, for the, what we perceived was the city and the region, but nonetheless, we had opposition against us. It didn't make any sense. But, but, you know, there's a lot of reasons for opposition. Just, you know, there's a lot of reasons. I think you guys can guess a few, but one of the reasons that there's a lots of opposition against you is sometimes people just see what you're doing and they don't like the way you did it. They, they don't have any reason to hate you other than, hey, uh, I think you need to fix what you did. I don't think that's the way you should have did it. They didn't do anything themselves. They just didn't like the way you did it, okay? There's also, there's also reason, another reason why people don't like you is they just don't like the way you executed it, right? You executed it before them. They had the idea for that company, that business, that church, that ministry, and you executed first, and they don't like it. It also could be that they're, they're just having a really, really bad day, or week, or months, or years, or life, and they just are having a bad time, and they just wanna give some of that to you. Thank you for that. And sometimes they just don't understand what you're trying to accomplish. They only have half the story. There's all sorts of reason for opposition. And Nehemiah finds himself at this point where he's trying to do something good. He's trying to rebuild the linchpin city for all that God would do in Jerusalem. And ultimately, the coming of Jesus would take place right there. And he's trying to build something special. And these guys show up, and they just dislike him. They just dislike him. Now, some of you guys were thinking, Maybe, maybe thinking, and I know, maybe, I know that this is a conversation I've had this week. Well, I don't know if I've had any criticism. I feel like I've, I've been relatively criticism-free my entire life. You know, I keep, keep a low profile, haven't done much. You know, I, I don't feel like no one's gotten in the way. Well, uh, this quote's attributed to Aristotle, but he does say this. He says, criticism is something you can avoid really easily by saying nothing, doing nothing, and being nothing. So it's actually very easy to avoid criticism. All you have to do is don't do anything. Okay? Criticism will come if you come. And guess what? Criticism will happen as you seek the betterment of San Francisco and the Bay, greater Bay Area. It will happen. There is no scenario in which you love, serve, and care for your city and the needs of people around you outside of yourself, and that does not ultimately bring opposition and detraction. It will happen. I also want to say this. In the context of city transformation, Unfounded negative criticism is a sign that you're beginning to make real change. It's a sign. Not only is it, it, not only is it gonna happen, it's actually necessary. So don't be discouraged by the negative criticism and opposition and haters, so to speak, that are gonna come about you when you try to do the work of God or to make the city better in your right. Okay? Do not be discouraged by that. And Nehemiah gives us yet another great example. And this is why this book is so important. He gives us another example. He has critics. He has naysayers. He has haters. They show up, and he handles them extraordinarily well by the grace of God. It's wonderful. If we want to build up Bay City Church to be a city within a city that can help stand against opposition and help meet the physical and spiritual and emotional needs of the city, we are going to need to heed Nehemiah's example of how he handles the opposition in his midst, okay? 
So this is what we're going to do. We're going to walk through exactly how Nehemiah handles opposition. Okay, exactly how. The first thing he does, and the first thing you need to do, is you need to take time to form your vision and your life for your life and for your city. You have to take time to do this. This is what Nehemiah did. He didn't rush in anything. Look at verse 9 with me, would you? Nehemiah says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers from the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So he gets to the province just before the gates of Jerusalem, okay? He's headed into Jerusalem, and by the way, this is about 100 miles, and we don't have you know, Priuses in this day, okay? So it didn't just take one tank of gas, you show up, it's no big deal, you get out, stretch your legs. 100 miles took a really long time, especially with all these people. So imagine taking a road trip across the country, getting out, and two people are standing right there and going, you know what, I don't like the way you drove here. Wasn't, a, wasn't smart. And by the way, remember that Christmas dinner, that was terrible what you did with your family. And they're just pointing out all the negative things that you, that you are all about, your complete essence and being. They're just ripping them apart. Two guys, Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite. Now, why were they mad? Does the passage say? It does. It tells us why. It says it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Why are they mad? They didn't want a marginalized people group to be served and to be bettered and to be grown up. That's what takes place right here. They're like, ah, we don't like the Israelites. We don't like Jerusalem. This displeases us greatly. Well, it would be nice if people said that in YouTube comments instead of the things they do say. This comment, this video displeases me greatly. That would be a way better way to encourage someone on a YouTube video. But instead, we get what we have, a lot of mud slinging. But for no other reason other than they just didn't want, the Jeru- they just didn't want Jerusalem fixed. They just disliked it. Guys, there's going to be people in your job, there's going to be people in your city, there's going to be people in your school that dislike you for taking community action, for calling your your politician or your neighborhood supervisor. There are going to be people that dislike you for starting neighborhood associations and cohorts. There's going to be people that dislike you for serving on PTO boards. There's going to be people that dislike you because you're, if you are a Christian, you're serving in a church, or if you're part of another faith, you're serving in some other faith, they're going to, they're going to dislike you for that. They're going to dislike you. Why? Because they just don't like it. That's it. Many of you, I, I would assume that many of you have come across people that just dislike something about you for literally no reason at all, okay? That happens. That's what's happening to Nehemiah. They don't have reasons to dislike you. They just don't. And perhaps they see some sort of image of you on social media and have formed their opinions based on your cat pictures. And they just like, this lady has lots of cats and I just dislike her cats. I don't know about her cats. They displease me greatly. And she's got a giant tower right in a window and everyone sees it in the neighborhood and no one likes it. And they're just forming opinions about you based on nothing. They're, con- they're conforming basic phantom images of you, and they're going, I don't like that image. And they've never even met you. That's what's happening to Nehemiah. What was Nehemiah's response? What was his response? Verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. What? That's his response? For all Nehemiah's full speed and drive, he just took three days. He took three days, he took a beat. He didn't respond verbally, quickly. He took his time and gathered a response. How many of you have been in an argument and have said something so off the cuff that as it's coming out, you wish you could pull it back? 
All of us, all of us. Right now, Google Gmail even has an undo feature on your emails. If you have a quick enough draw to press it, you can bring that email back. But man, it goes quick. I mean, that five seconds is quick. Like 40 seconds would be great, right? Maybe a delay or something. But we've all been there. But Nehemiah doesn't respond to the haters, doesn't respond to the detractors, the opposition. He just takes a beat. Many people are looking for a reason to dislike you. And key, and key to your ability to handle the opposition is going to be your, your ability to wait, to just sit in the tension for just a moment. They're probably baiting him. It's possible. Now, what else does Nehemiah do? Look at verse 12. Nehemiah says, Then I rose at night, and I and a few men with me, and I told no one about what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one in which I had rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem. So he's going out, and he's looking at everything at the entire wall, he's looking at the whole wall. He's saying, okay, there's a hole here. There's a, a gap there. There's a fire there. There's a gate here. Where He's analyzing the entire situation of Jerusalem in the wall. Okay, that's what he's doing. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates had been destroyed by fire. Then I went onto the fountain gate into the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up into the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate. And so, and so returned. And here's 16, this is interesting. And the officials did not know where I had gone and or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. So what does Nehemiah do right here? He gets opposition in his face. He doesn't respond. Instead, he waits three days and then he goes to Jerusalem and he does some homework. He gets a lay of the land. He sees exactly where all the needs are. He, he meets some of the people. He doesn't take very many people with him. He looks at all of the gaps in the wall. What, what are the materials I'm going to need? How much money is this going to cost? Where are the men and the women that I'm going to need to rebuild this place? He gets all of the facts and the information. He does this so he's informed with the right answers. He does this so he's informed with the right answers. You see, there's going to be critics watching. The critics, stand ballot, and they're going to be watching. They're going to fact check you. They're going to be on Google. They're going to be double checking your answers as you give them, okay? They're going to be watching to see if you know the facts about your city and about what you're talking about. They're going to see. And Nehemiah takes his time, and he double checks everything. But Nehemiah also knew that this project wasn't just about Nehemiah, that this project was a project for God and from God and for Jerusalem. And so he actually takes his time for two reasons. One, because the people are going to be watching. And second, attention to detail communicates your seriousness to God. When God calls you to something and you have an intention to detail, God is honored by your attention to detail. Every little bit, he's honored by that. And he cares. It communicates how serious you are about exactly what God's calling you to do. He takes his time. He learns every detail. These are things that we could do as we begin to experience the vision of what God's called us to do in our cities and for our lives. These are things that will communicate the seriousness of ourselves to God. We can take our time. We can learn every detail. We can be on time. We can talk to the right people. We can prepare ourselves for the detractors and opposition that are coming. You see, there's so many of us that we get half-baked ideas and we kind of just go 
spout them off to everybody. Like, I'm going to start a business. I think I'm going to start a business. Oh, I, got, I got this company coming. You know, I got this new app I'm working on. You know, I don't think about jumping into this church. And it's like, well, you're a part of five churches and you've got seven businesses and you didn't finish the other six and we don't take you seriously anymore, John. That's, that happens all the time. This is a serial starter, but never finishing. Nehemiah didn't want to be this person. He wanted to make sure that he had all of his facts in line and he kept his cards close to his chest when he was ready. And when he's ready, this is what happens. Point number two, cast a vision to your family, friends, and yourself for the life you want to lead. Cast it. Once it's prepared, you're ready to share the plan, okay? Don't share it as you go. You can't think your vision out loud to somebody because you go, ah, no, no, no. Uh, people will form expectations of you based on that half-cocked vision. No, to take your time. Take your time and then share your plan when you're ready. Look at verse 17. Nehemiah does it. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruin with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem. He's casting vision to his people here. That we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them that the hand of, God, of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. So he does a few things here. He, he, he casts some vision, but then he also says, hey, I, the king gave me his cosign, and also God's been on me. So there's, there's, there's three things here that we can take from Nehemiah and his vision that we can implement in our vision to be able to cast this for people as we seek to meet the needs of San Francisco Bay Area. First thing he does is he states the reality of Jerusalem. You see, he did all that homework. He knows exactly what took him taking place. He says, it's broken, it's lost. Our legacy is gone. There are fires at this gate and that gate. This gate's locked. That one's burned down. This one's broken down. He has his facts. He states the reality of what's taking place for his vision. Then he calls people to action. You see, he calls them. He says, guys, this is why we need to do this. And he calls them to go build the gates. Let's go rebuild this wall. And then afterwards, he states his credibility statement. He states the reality, calls people to action, then he has a credibility statement. He says, why is this going to work, essentially? Why is this going to work? Well, it's going to work because the king gave me his blessing. The king believes in me. And the hand of God is on me. And he states that credibility statement. When deciding your vision for yourself and for us collectively as a church, we will need to follow this formula. And let me just quickly give you the reality of San Francisco. Let me, let me do this for you for our city. San Francisco is, by and large, the least churched city in America, and it is, by and far, if you include the entire region, the least church metropolitan region in America. 4% of people come to church on a Sunday morning in San Francisco, 4%. You may not know that, but 4% of people do. The region is 61% unchurched as a whole, all 8.93 million people in the Bay Area. San Francisco itself has the least amount of children out of any major city in the United States. There's 116,000 roughly children in San Francisco. 116,000 children. It's a very, very small amount of children. If God loves children, we want to see more children here. San Francisco has the fewest amount of new churches out of any major city in the United States. In fact, in, over the last nine years, consulting with some local pastors, there have been only five churches that have started in the last nine years that are financially stable. Only five, compared to 15 a year in most cities. Only, only five. In this part of the city alone, there are issues like gentrification, division, brokenness, isolation, new developments, all taking place, division in the city. 
Our part of the city needs Jesus. We want to we wanna be a church that can help meet the physical needs as well because there's homelessness epidemics and there's fatherlessness ep- epidemics in our city and community isolation in our city, and we want to help meet those needs. And also we see spiritual needs in the city as well, that people are depressed and anxious and lost and lonely. We want to meet those needs as well. Now, I don't know about you, but I've obviously clearly pushed my chips into what I want to do for San Francisco. I want to invite you guys to do the same thing as well. I want you to analyze exactly where God is calling you and to put real bolts in real rocks and help build something special. And I want to invite you into being a part of what we're trying to do at Bay City Church. We may not look like more than a few scores of people right now, but our impact, I pray, will outweigh our size. I pray for that. And I want you to be a part of what God is doing in this part of the city. Because we believe, our credibility statement, that God has called us to something special, that the transformation of the city is imminent, and that new churches are being started all around the city, and God's going to do magical things to transform this place for his glory and our joy. And I believe that. And so I want to invite you guys to be a part of that. Now, back to Nehemiah. What was Nehemiah's, what was the response to Nehemiah's call? Because I just gave you one. So what was the people's response to Nehemiah's? Ver, uh, just at the end of verse 16 there? Is that, oh, sorry, the verse, uh, then verse 18. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they were there. They were charged up. Maybe it was a brave heart-like scene. People were painted face. I, probably not. Probably not. That's how I like to imagine it. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. What did they do? They got excited and they wanted to be a part of what God was doing. Cool, right? Guys, sometimes your calling is gonna activate the vision of somebody else's calling. Sometimes my hope, and one of the coolest things about San Francisco is that our calling, me and my wife's calling to San Francisco has activated some of your callings. But sometimes as you're thinking about your vision for your life, your calling is gonna activate your neighbor's calling. And you may need to cast vision to your, your roommates, to your family, to your friends, to your coworkers, to say, this is what we should do for this part of the city or for this job or for this school. You should cast that vision and see what takes place because you may activate that calling. But sometimes someone else's calling is going to activate yours. You may not be the one with this big vision, but my hope is that my vision, our vision, would help activate yours for our city. That even if it doesn't take place at Bay City Church, which I hope it does, even if it doesn't, that you find somewhere to love our city because this place is going to be changed by a group of people that contribute to the needs, great, the needs of the city greater than ourselves. Okay, so you need, to cast a, you need to think on your vision, you need to cast that vision, but then there's going to be noise. There's going to be, they're going to come back. The haters are going to come back. The YouTube comments are going to come back. So you're going to have to assess where the negative noise is coming from. There's always going to be noise, gossip, negativity, opposition, but you're going to have to see where it's coming from because if you don't know, it could be friendly fire, it could be from over the hill, you don't know where the opposition is coming from, you might not understand and your vision could fall flat just based on the way you react to the opposition. Look at verse 19. But when Sanballat and the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab, they brought another homie, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? How relevant is the Bible? How relevant is this? The Bible's, not, it, the Bible's timeless, but it's also timely. It's also timely. And for some of us right now, we're experiencing this exact same thing. 
there's someone stands up and just has bold opposition for literally no reason, just despising Nehemiah. He's trying to do something awesome, and these people dislike him. It hits him. The noise hit before he even casted the vision, remember at the front end, and now it's hitting even harder now that he's given his plan. And so Sanballat and this other guy, what's his name, uh, Tobiah, have brought another goon with him, Geshem the Arab. And now the three stooges have all shown up, and now they're hating on him, comment after comment, on Facebook and YouTube and the like. And they're getting after him. But Nehemiah still has to assess where the noise is coming from, because he knows who, but he has to see how it's gonna hit him. And let me explain, because there's three types of opposition you're gonna experience as we try to build a, a vision for uh, what you wanna do in San Francisco. There's gonna be three types, and the first type is, is gonna come from the world. The world, this is the greater people of the world, okay? And this is where we see Geshem the Arab and Sanbal and Tobiah and all these people. There's gonna be sometimes people in your life that are just rubbed the wrong way by God's will for your life. They're just rubbed the wrong way. They dislike it. They don't, you're not helping the way they wanted, they just don't like you, okay? That's going to happen. You are more successful than they are. You know, particularly for Christianity, if you're a Christian, the Western world, um, despite the headlines on the news, um, if, you, if you don't lope yourself in with like political evangelicalism, if you say, hey, I'm a Bible-believing, I love Jesus, Christian, I just wanna help my neighbors and serve the people around me, and I don't wanna get involved in some of the, the political mudslinging, I just wanna serve really well and love Jesus and help other people to come to love Jesus, that's actually not really well-liked in our city. It's actually not really well-liked. Despite the fact that we, we just wanna help, um, at times, we're just not liked. Some people aren't gonna like the opportunity when you share uh, G, uh, the story of Jesus about in your life to, at a coffee break. They're not gonna like that. And I was meeting with a, a guy some years ago at a top uh, tech company in the city, and I was sitting with him, just in a, got, to, got to get to know him, and brought me on, on his campus, and I asked him, like, hey, what's it like to share the Bible here? You know, do, 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 are people interested? And he's like, he gets really low, and he's like, hey, we're not allowed to talk about like that here. And I was like, what are you talking about? Well, what are they gonna do, throw me out of the window? I mean, like, I'm, it's like, I'll be all right, you know what I mean? He's like, well, you know, we got some, some of us got into trouble. We, we, we had a conference room, we did a Bible study, and we weren't allowed to, to bring that, that sort of thing on campus. Now, I know that's not true everywhere. I've been to plenty of your campuses where that's totally fine, but at this specific campus, he was whispering like he was Anne Frank, okay? It was like crazy. I'm like, relax, okay? But, but Christianity's not that well-liked, okay? And so you may experience opposition from the world in that way. But, but also, there are other oppositions, other levels of it. So you have the world, but you also have your own flesh. The flesh can be in opposition. Sometimes the battle is internal, not external, right? Sometimes the battle is internal, not external. How many of you, question, how many of you have felt like you had plans to do something important, but you got in your own way? You failed, you slept in, you, you couldn't execute, you got involved in something you shouldn't have got involved in, you had plans to be doing something special, and you got in your own way. This is what we're talking about. This is our own broken nature working against us. We have the world, but also flesh, sloth, laziness. Sometimes we're argumentative with people, and that derails the entire, the entire plan that we had. We overwork ourselves, and we burn out, and so we're not helpful to anybody because we're just tired all of the time. Sometimes we second-guess ourselves. We, we have a plan, but we just don't believe it to be true, and so we never execute. And sometimes you start making God's work about you and not about God. That's probably the most common form of vision detraction is that when we start to see success, it becomes about 
us and not about what God is doing. And so I want to encourage you to avoid those things. And one of the ways you can do that is when you have a sand ballot and a Tobiah and a Geshem show up, you need to allow your critics to be your biggest coaches. Allow your critics to be your biggest coaches. And every criticism, almost every criticism, there's a kernel of truth. And you need to analyze what this person is saying what, and, and find that kernel and say, okay, is there something in here I can learn from? Is there something in here that can make me a better person, make me a better coworker, make me a better son, family member, what have you? You need to look for that. I encourage you to always pull the kernel of truth out of criticisms to assure yourself that it's not your flesh that is your opposition. And then lastly, there's a third enemy. There's the world, there's the flesh, and then there's the enemy, I'll call it. The spiritual realm that is around us. There is a spiritual enemy. For some of you, this may come as a surprise or shock, or you may think this is maybe a fairy tale, that there is a spiritual enemy that does not want the success of good in San Francisco, Okay? does not want the existence. And Ephesians 6, 12 helps explain this for us. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. There is a, an enemy, Satan, the devil, that ruling and reigning that is very proud and arrogant, and he wants people to fall away from good. He wants people to fall away from God. He wants people to raise up in isolation and in arrogance and in confidence about God, against God, rather, and, and for yourself. That's what, that's what the enemy wants, and he longs for that over you. And so you have to assess, where is this enemy coming from? But there is a common thread between all the oppositions. The common thread is that they all speak lies. The world, the flesh, and the enemy, they all speak lies. They all take half-truths, half-baked, and they give them to you. And some of us, we believe them, or at the very least, we're discouraged by them. So let me ask you a question. Where have you believed, analyze yourself and say, where have I believed a lie that someone else spoke into my life that I now take as fact? Where's the lie that I've been believing that forgiveness isn't important. I don't need to forgive that person. They've done me wrong. Uh, I'll just leave them. I'll ignore them. I'll give them the cold shoulder. No, they're wrong. They need to hear what I have to say. Or no, I am stupid. I am silly. I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be talking. You're right. I, I, I don't, I, I'm not right for this job. I'm not right for this family. Where have you believed that lie? Where have you believed it? That's the only way you're going to be able to get around these oppositions because they all lie. Listen, we don't believe everything other people say to us, but we do believe 100% of what we tell ourselves. And when you start to believe the things that other people have spoken in you as truth, you begin to speak them to yourself, and now all of a sudden you're believing lies that aren't actually true. And the opposition is one, and it can detract from your life and from the life of the city and the region as a whole. Okay? Now, here's the fourth thing. Okay? Here's the fourth thing we can do. Right, we've talked about casting a vision. We've talked about assessing where the noise is coming from. But now the last thing, you have to speak truth against the lies that others speak against you. You have to speak truth against the lies others speak against you. Verse 20, how does Nehemiah respond to these three guys? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Nehemiah returns their criticism, opposition, and lies with truth. 
God's gonna tell you something about your life. You're gonna begin to believe that thing about your life and other people and other detractors or other oppositions, the world, the flesh, the devil are gonna come in and speak lies into your life. And your goal and your job is gonna have to be to return those lies with truth. Now, if I'm honest with you, I think that this is where most of us stop our vision goal. As we're trying to plant, as we're trying to start our, our, our vision and build it up in our heart, we mess up right here. Because Nehemiah speaks the facts about the king's acknowledgement. He speaks the facts that God has got their hand in their life. But for some of us, this is where we are stuck. The opposition says we are wrong, but we have not returned truth into the situation. And so therefore, we find a giant roadblock in front of our lives and our vision. And so we cannot go forward because we're like, well, do I believe it? I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I should second guess it. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I am stupid. Maybe I'm not smart enough. Maybe, maybe I don't have the ability to do this. Maybe this church is too small. Maybe I, there's no chance this church can do anything big for Jesus. Maybe, maybe we are silly. For some of you, it's like, maybe I should just go back to Arizona or, or Missouri because I, I, maybe I can't figure this out. That's the, that is exactly where many of us hit the block. But in order to overcome opposition, this is the most crucial piece. Even if your vision is a little messy, it can always be fixed. But unless you speak truth back in the opposition, you're always gonna believe the lies that are holding you back. And I've heard some of us, myself included, literally speak lies that other people have told us to ourselves and about ourselves in crowds. I've literally heard that take place in small, you know what, no, my mom always said I was just dumb, so I guess I just don't have it all together. No, 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 no. You're not dumb. Your mom thinks you're dumb. She, she lied to you. Now, you know, I, I always thought, you know, you know they, if they can't get over this issue, you know, it's just, you know, they've got to be able to come to me before I'm going to go to them and apologize. That's just the way it is. No, no, no. That's a lie. That's a lie. There's no tit for tat. No, they, they've done me wrong. There's just no chance I'm ever going to be in a relationship with them again because they just keep messing up, so it's done. I've heard that one a lot. Oh, really? What if Jesus had said that? What if Jesus had said that? The relationship's broken, and there's no chance. What if Jesus had said that? This is the point where we need to begin to speak the truth of God in our lives, that you guys are a holy priesthood. For those who love Jesus, you are a chosen race of people that are loved graciously, with grace upon grace, that it can overcome any obstacle spiritually, emotionally. It's possible. That's the truth about you. And until you can speak that freely, you'll be stuck against your opposition. And some of us, our own flesh, our own bodies, is really what's the opposition. We're blocked. We can't get past it. No, 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 Jesus is not real. I mean, no, there's just no way this fairy tale, I mean, this 66 books collection over you know, 2,000 years, there's just no chance that's real. I mean, I believe in facts and science. As if those two things are incompatible. Who lied to you about that? You can't believe, you cannot base a vision on a lie. And you cannot base a life on a lie. And if you do, you're never going to find happiness. And you're certainly never going to overcome the, the, the entire zeitgeist of an entire city with a church. It's not possible. But friends, I'll, I'll conclude with this. Nehemiah, the reason why Nehemiah can confidently return truth against the lies is because in his corner, he has the ultimate truth teller. You see, Nehemiah goes to this guy, God, and in fact, Nehemiah 
praise in five of the 13 chapters in the book of Nehemiah, extensively. He prays outside of Christ as much as any other person in the Bible. He goes to the ultimate truth teller, and that's how he knows he can be sure. There's a prince of lies, the enemy. There's ourselves who get in the way. There's people who don't understand and lie and tell wrong things. But then there's the truth giver. That's name's Jesus. And Nehemiah has access to God. But what do you have? Do you have access to him? I think you do. Many of you do. If you don't, you, may be, you, might, you might be asking yourself questions like this. Well, maybe they're right. Maybe I'm wrong. And you're left with your three-pound or eight-pound brain, whatever, however much brains weigh, for crying out loud. Is there a neuroscientist in here? You're left with your brain, and you've got to figure out the answers on your own. And you've got to read a collection of books and read a, watch a collection of YouTube videos to assess whether or not this person is speaking truth into you. And one of two things can happen. You can puff your chest up and go, no, no, that person's wrong and they're always wrong. Or they're always right and you fall yourself into tremendous amounts of despair and self-loathing. But with Jesus, you have power. With God, you have actual power and direct opposition towards the lies that people speak to you. The three oppositions. The first one, the flesh. God returns the lies of the flesh with truth. Galatians 5.24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The flesh has no power here. For those that have a spiritual truth teller, the flesh doesn't get to play here. I may believe it for a second, but ultimately, God's got power over my own flesh. For the second opposition, the world, God returns that with John 16, 33. Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me, Jesus, you may have peace. And in the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You've got the guy in your corner that can overcome the noise of the Sanballats and the Tobias and the Geshems. You've got them. And the last enemy Okay, the last opposition, the enemy, the devil, Colossians 1.13, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the church. You have the answers with the truth teller. You have the answers. Now, as you form your vision and you go home and you, you think about exactly how God's gonna do you know, miracles through you, how he's going to reach your neighbors, your coworkers, um, how, how, how you're going to serve and help a church, and how you're going to maybe make the biggest decision in your life that's coming up next as you're doing that. Begin to hear and listen for what are the lies I've been believing about myself and about the church and about San Francisco and about the Bay Area, and how can I return truth for those lies? The biggest lie I hear all of the time, and I'll just end with this, is that, and I hate San Francisco. I had a, some, some, some months ago at a friend I sat across from and uh, did ministry, served in ministry. And I said, hey, what, you know, what's the biggest barrier to you doing ministry in San Francisco? And he says, I hate it here. I said, why do you hate it here? And he said, I don't like the people. I don't like the, the crowds. These aren't my people. I said, hey, man, these are God's people. If you do ministry, these are your people. Don't believe the lie, because guess what? Jesus loves cities. God loves cities. God's entire plan for all of the Bible, from Genesis, the first book of the Bible, to Revelation, the last book of the Bible, is from the garden to a city. 
and that we start in a garden with two people and that at the end of days, Jesus comes back and brings with him a redeemed, renewed, and restored city. Don't believe the lie. Find your vision. Let me pray for you.